Tonight's scripture is from Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? When then did you go, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I shall send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever come into a situation where you had these expectations, and they're pretty high, and you find that in the midst of it, they've gone almost entirely unfulfilled? I had an experience kind of like this. When I was in college, I was a junior, and uh, I had a lot of friends who were outdoorsmen, and uh, they talked up this spring break trip that we were going to have. Uh, We were going to go on the Appalachian Trail for three or four days, loop back. Uh, They really knew what they were doing and very excited about it. They painted this picture that we were going to have great time together, bonding, uh, a spiritual time of being able to really connect and spend time in the Word, time to really just rest and and gear up for the last uh, five or six weeks of school. Well, I decided to go with them, even though I'm no outdoorsman, Um, we got prepared and we had all of the best gear. Uh, we started off well and, um, and really after seven or eight hours uh, that first day, I was thinking, yeah, I can do this. We were about a half hour from uh, where we needed to be and I was starting to get uh, really just kind of uh, tired, all of us were. And we were, uh, I, was, I was a sweaty mess at that point actually. And, and it was about 45 minutes or it was about 45 degrees at the time. And for those of you who are experienced outdoorsmen, you know that uh, temperature can drop if you're up on uh, one of these uh, balds uh, in the Smoky Mountains. And so uh, in about an hour's time, the temperature dropped about 25 degrees. And I went from thinking, oh, okay, I can do this, to thinking, why in the world am I here? Okay, I was, I was fetal position for about two hours, uh, just trying to warm up in my sleeping bag, absolutely frozen. I wish I could say that the next uh, four days got a little bit better, but they really didn't. Uh, You know, we had blisters, we had infighting among us, it was a low point in a lot of our relationships. Uh, It was awful. Um, it, uh, It certainly started out bad and went worse. As I look back on that time, I think that certainly John the Baptist is in a much, much more substantial time in his life. But he's facing expectations that he has and the difference that he's seeing in reality. He's expected a Messiah to come and establish a kingdom on earth. 
He's been preaching and expecting that this Messiah would come and that he would bring justice, that he would reign. He's expecting that the wrongs would be righted. And so he sees the divergence here and he sends his disciples to Jesus at this low point in his life and he says, are you it or should we expect somebody else? And so tonight I want us to think about this question. What do we learn about Jesus' identity from his response to John the Baptist's question? Again, what do we learn about Jesus' identity from his response to John the Baptist's questions? I think the first thing that we see is that following the Messiah may bring unexpected suffering and difficulty to disciples. As we look at what's going on here, as Jesus responds, the first thing that he says, the first thing uh, that he says is not, uh, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to write this ship. Um, ultimately, John, you're going to get out of this. There's really not a comforting note that Jesus has as he addresses John in this time. This is a time of unexpected suffering and difficulty. For John, and to give you a brief sketch of this, uh, John is one of these guys. He's an outdoorsman. He uh, has spent his whole life preaching in the open air. He is the one that's, uh, as you remember, eating locusts and wild honey. He's got camel hair on. He is the real deal when it comes to being outside. He knows that. He loves that. He's prepared for that. He is. Uh, he has fasted. He's one of these uh, uh, people that has incredible discipline. And he's looked to and he's revered. But he finds that all of this preparation has not prepared him for what he's going to face here. And, and the way that I, I'd like to do this, this is a little bit different environment I know than uh, what we do typically preaching. But if everybody will stand up, go ahead and stand up. Um, we're going to take a trip to visit John the Baptist, okay? So... Uh, if you're coming in to where John would have been, um, and, and you're one of his disciples kind of getting the word from him, what you would be doing instead of, you know, I, starting the research, I didn't understand this uh, at all, but I thought, okay, this would be a prison cell. But actually, if you will, if you'll turn your gaze downward, and if you'll envision a three-foot-wide circle hole, that's where John the Baptist is. He's probably in some kind of a carved-out cistern or a well and and kind of a conical area. Now, when you're talking to John, it's going to reverberate up. You're not really going to be able to hear him that well because he's pretty far down there. As you're looking down there, you may see some things on the floor moving around because these type prisons were home of a lot of rodents and a lot of different vermin. Okay? I think the last thing, though, that's, that's, that's most telling Uh, about what John's experience uh, would have been like is there's nothing that he can see of the outside. It's completely dark in there. He's not able to see the outdoors that he so loves. He's not given really anything other than that cell that he's down there. One of the commentators said that they used to throw people in here just to starve and die and that most prisoners wouldn't last more than about one year's time in there. So if you can sit back down now. But I hope that's given you a bit of an image of uh, what John would have been facing uh, there. 
He's this guy that he's been outdoors his whole life, and here he is in this dark, abandoned, lonely place. Uh, if, you, if you would be inhaling what is coming out of that cell, uh, it would be awful. Uh, those things were typically never cleaned. Okay? There's no bathroom. The stench would have been overwhelming. And so I, I hope that gives you a picture of where this question is coming from. This is not just the question of some guy that's kind of losing it in the midst of a midlife crisis or something. This is something that's, that's very, very difficult. And the way that Jesus responds to it, I, I think, is, is significant as well, because he doesn't write it off as, as being an inappropriate question. You know, we see Jesus in many places say, oh, how long do I have to endure this generation? Or, you, oh, you of little faith when he sees his disciples' responses at times. He, that's none, none of that is here. He is tender and compassionate as he responds to John. Now, he is truthful, and, and he, we'll, we'll talk about how he goes to his actions here in a moment, but he is tender and compassionate in that. So as, as we think about that question, and as we think about uh, that move that, that Jesus has, there's almost a sense that following the Messiah, it does bring this unexpected suffering. That is the normal Christian life. As we were talking about it and praying about it on Wednesday and then here before the service, there's a sense that following God's will, following his lead, uh, it's, it's positively correlated, actually, with suffering. Uh, another way to put that, you know, if we look around the world, we see typically, as Christians are faithful, uh, that they incur more suffering. When we look at what's going on in the church where it's growing rapidly in China or in India or in Africa or in South America, in so many different places, the normal Christian life is a life of difficulty, is a life of increased suffering. And I think that that's something that it, it's, it's hard for us oftentimes in the West to really grasp that. You know, I can tell you that as John's looking around at his surroundings, he's not thinking, this is my best life now. Okay, this is uh, not what uh, a televangelist uh, would be uh, you know, spouting off. So I think as we look at this, we can see, again, that, um, that following the Messiah may bring suffering, may bring difficulty, and that if we're in that spot, if you're in that spot tonight where you're saying, goodness gracious, Lord, what is going on? I thought life was going to be like this in Christ, and it is not. If you're right there, the Lord may have you there for a reason. If you're right there, there's a good chance that you haven't done anything wrong. There's a good chance that he's got you right there in that circumstance, perhaps just like he had John the Baptist. Take a minute to consider, where is it hard right now? Where is it difficult in your life? What questions are are percolating up in your soul at this moment? What would it look like, as John's doing, in a difficult time of life to be able to take those to Jesus? To even be able to take those to Jesus in community? Because, you know, as John is raising this question, he's, he's the guru of sorts, and yet he's having this crisis of faith. He's sending his disciples to ask this question. He's doing this in community. What would, it be, what would it look like 
for you to raise those questions in your community, among those people that you're closest with here in the body. I think the second thing that we see uh, here as we consider what we learn from Jesus uh, in, in regard to his identity, he is the Messiah. He fulfills the prophecy. And he is bringing healing and peace. Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and to report what they see and hear. There's almost a sense that he's not just saying, oh, just take my word on it or uh, just you know, tell them uh, this phrase or these different things. He's saying, I want you to validate what's going on. This is not just a bunch of words. This is what I'm actually doing. And the thing is, he quotes from Isaiah and he goes beyond actually, what was prophesied. He quotes from Isaiah 35, 5, and 6 here, and then Isaiah 61. Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, if you look at it, um, Jesus says, uh, or the prophecy is, that uh, the Messiah would uh, help the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to jump. And of course, 61, 1, is that uh, the Messiah would be able to preach the good news to the poor. Well, Jesus is going beyond that. And he's doing so intentionally. He's saying, I'm doing all those things, and then I'm I'm also cleansing lepers. I'm also raising the dead. He's saying, I'm going far beyond uh, what was prophesied of the Messiah. I am the Messiah. Go and report that. So he doesn't back off, you know, and and, uh, give John or anyone else an out that, okay, he actually is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Indeed, he's the Messiah. Uh, And and he comes with a a significant force uh, there as he shares that. I think as we think about how we respond to that, if we pause, it really requires a significant amount of humility when we're at our deepest, darkest moments, when we're in a difficult place, to be able to see, okay, he is the Messiah. He is fulfilling things. I'm not experiencing some of those now, but look out around. You know, sometimes we talk about how, and I'm certainly guilty of this so often, but we get caught in our small story. You know, I get caught in the Spencer story. I can't see anything that's going on beyond my family or my business or uh, our community. When we experience suffering, sometimes it's hard to see, okay, actually, that's what the Lord is doing. He's doing it one town over. He's doing some amazing things. He's doing amazing things in the lives of these people who uh, they're adopting children, uh, they're fostering children, uh, they're taking in uh, and and helping people in a wide variety of ways. They're swim coaches for the Emerald Youth Swim Team. They're doing a a myriad of different things. It's hard sometimes uh, when we're caught up in our own smaller story to be able to see that tapestry that the Lord's weaving, that larger story of what he's doing. And yet clearly that is what Jesus is calling John and his disciples to see. He's saying, look at what I'm doing. You know, yeah, you're in a very, very difficult situation, but look at what I'm doing. I'm still fulfilling uh, what was prophesied. I'm raising the dead. I'm healing lepers. The blind are seeing. So I think, you know, one of the things that we could ask ourselves today and we can ask in community Where are we, or where am I, getting trapped in that smaller story? Where is it hard for me to see beyond some of the circumstances that I'm facing? Where is Jesus offending me right now? Jesus talks about uh, these different things that he's doing, and then he says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Basically, blessed is the one who is not offended by the way that I'm working out 
this salvation. Because I'm doing it. But it just may not be in the timing and in the way that you so hope for. I think one of the follow-up things as well there would be, does your community know? Do your people know? Do those four, five, six people know? Do they know when you, ten- when you have a tendency to get into that smaller story? And do they have those resources? Do they have those ways to really be able to encourage you to know, okay, when, when this individual is struggling, I can encourage him um, by reminding him of, of this scripture or ber- reminding her of this experience where the Lord came and he did work. Do we know each other well enough to do that? How can we be uh, proactive? How can we be um, intent on loving each other in a very significant way like that? So I, I think the final thing, uh, well, you know, we, we've talked about how uh, following the Messiah brings suffering oftentimes. Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, the third thing that I want to talk about is being born of the kingdom enables us to embrace the Messiah. You know, as I was preparing for the sermon, um, the first two points kind of struck me uh, right off. But this last point, uh, as we've been in community and as the community continues to speak on what's going on with the Holy Spirit, I think is, is profound and significant, particularly coming off Doug's series with the Trinity and, and just the, the nature of God and how God works. Because uh, Jesus affirms John's character and his role. He, he's not saying anything uh, about uh, you know, the, the shortcoming that John has or about his lack of faith. He's saying, in fact, in verses 7 through 10, that he's a stout individual, that he's as good as it gets before the kingdom comes. He is a prophet beyond any of the prophets of old. He's saying, this guy is amazing. But I think the thing that's, that's even far beyond that is saying, he's saying the least of us the least of us believers because we are born of the kingdom go beyond John the Baptist. You know, we've, we've, we've talked some about John and, and um, Doug's preached on him in the past. I mean, this guy is an amazing guy. To think that the least of us goes beyond John is just remarkable. You know, it, it's, it's a little bit like... Um, uh, my family and I, we had uh, some friends down from Indiana uh, when I was maybe seven or eight years old for Christmas, and uh, this family came in, and I remember there's an, uh, the, the grandfather of the family. He was in his late 60s at the time, and he had grown up playing basketball. He was a, a good basketball player, apparently, back in the 20s or 30s. And um, we got out shooting, and, uh, and he gets out there, and he gets the ball, and he, he starts doing this number. It's just like, what are you doing? He said, oh, that's, that's the way you shoot the basketball. I said, I've never seen a shot like that. But somewhere apparently in the late 1930s, people learned to shoot like this. And so uh, what happened was you had this pivot point where, you know, I'm a seven-year-old and I can play basketball in a much different way than this guy who he had played basketball growing up his entire life uh, could play. Uh, in effect, you have a seven-year-old being able to get off shots off a grown man when, you know, he's shooting like this and, and he can't do it anymore. I think that, um, that there's a pivot point uh, that we see Jesus referring to that's, that's not dissimilar from that. 
there are things that John never saw. As great as he was, he never saw. He never experienced in his lifetime. He never saw the cross, never saw the resurrection, and he was not empowered with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in the same way that we are. He was incredibly devoted, incredibly faithful. He was a preacher of God's word. He knew the Old Testament better than any of us will ever hope to know the Old Testament. I'm sure he had more Bible memorized than uh, any of us in our lifetimes, maybe even collectively. You know, all 150 of us uh, would have. But he hadn't seen how God would work through the cross. He hadn't seen God come and die for us. He hadn't seen that mercy. And he hadn't been empowered by the Holy Spirit in the same way at Pentecost. Now, you know, it says in the word, as, as John was uh, conceived and born and such, that the Holy Spirit was upon him in some way, some mysterious way that, that uh, Old Testament prophets had. But he wasn't empowered uh, in the same way in Pentecost. And so I, I think the outcome here, and, and not to belabor, belabor the point, but I think as we think about the resources that we have, as we think about the fact that we've seen the cross, that we're empowered to know what the end of the story is, that we will win over death. Our leader has already won over death. We will win over death. And that we have this Holy Spirit that is working in and through us to inspire, to encourage, to keep us faithful. It's amazing. When we look at uh, kind of the normal Christian life of leaders early in the church, we see persecution, we see martyrdom, we see all of these different things, and yet we see incredible faithfulness. And I, th- I think that is really uh, what Jesus is getting after here. The least of us, we can be faithful in ways, and we can know God in ways that, uh, that even the greatest prophets uh, did not have access to. So again, I, I think... You know, one of the things this week, I hope that we find ways to be able to encourage each other. Brother, sister, we have the Holy Spirit. Brother, sister, remember the cross. Remember what God has done for us. This is remarkable. This is astonishing what he's done for us. As I think back on, uh, you know, that hiking trip, uh, it wasn't fun in the moment. I wished I was at the beach virtually every hour that I was on that trip, five days straight. But in retrospect, I'm thankful for really everything it involved. The lessons, friendships, they were frayed in the moment, but they went deeper as a result. And even the soul rest that it offered. I I couldn't even open my Bible. I was so cold the entire time. Couldn't get my hands going. It was not the trip that I expected, but it was everything that it was promised. I pray that in this season, we can see beyond suffering to embrace Jesus as the Messiah.